I'm just so amazed at how much attention and um, action I've seen on on methane mitigation, uh, and that's that's a huge change because I've been coming to COP for a long time, and and we've never ever seen anything like this. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the program. But today, we're in Dubai at the 28th Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, better known as COP28. And we're very fortunate to have with us Jonathan Banks, who has had a great deal of experience in these negotiations and actually with climate change policy more broadly. Jonathan is currently the global director of the Methane Pollution Prevention Program at the Clean Air Task Force. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, Robert. I'm interested, really, to hear your impressions of COP28 here in Dubai. But before we talk about that, let's just go back briefly to how you came to be where you are. Um, Our listeners are always interested to hear this. So uh, let's start with where did you grow up? Well, I'm originally from Texas. Uh, I Uh grew up north of uh, Dallas in what was a somewhat small town at the time. It's not so small anymore, Denton, Texas. Um, I spent most of my young life in Texas, went to school at the University of Texas in Austin, and uh, then left Texas and have never been back since. So Now, now when you left Texas, um, I don't know if it was immediately when, when you left or with some delay, but I believe you were a Peace Corps volunteer in the Republic of the Congo. Is that right? That's correct. Um it was about a year after uh, graduating that we got our in my wife and I both went together. We mm-hmm. both uh, were had met through our both the, both of our desires to join the Peace Corps and uh, ended up going mm-hmm. together as a couple. And we were in Republic of Congo working on a program called WASH, which is water and sanitation and health education. But we ended up doing a lot of other things like uh, working on um, uh, better uh, efficient stoves for uh, for home cooking and things like that. So, so that's that's interesting because this is something that at least partially we have in common. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Africa, but I was in West Africa and in Sierra Leone, and probably about two decades before uh, you were. Um, and at least for me, it was, uh, and I worked in agriculture, lowland rice mm-hmm. development, uh, and it was a fundamentally important uh, experience for me. I always say that other than meeting my wife, which was later, and having children, that was the most defining moment, I think, or, or event of my life. It definitely has that ability to really um, redirect how you think uh, and exactly. view the world. Unfortunately, my um, our, our Peace Corps service was cut a little bit short because we had a civil war in Congo that broke out. Oh, right. And uh, right. we're we're evacuated out of the country, uh, which is a whole other story for some other time. <laughs> I could imagine. Now, now you left the Congo. You you worked as a legislative assistant in the U.S. House of Representatives, which I'll mention for our international audience is the lower body in the bicameral legislature for a couple of years. Then I believe you were deputy director at the National Environmental Trust. Is that right? 
Yeah, I, when I was working on the Hill, I worked for a congressman who um, had a major role in the Energy and Commerce Committee, which is uh-huh. one of the biggest committees uh, when it comes to the environment. And the there was at that time there was a big push to on deregulation of the energy sector, and there was some environmental groups that were seeking to attach to the deregulation push a um, piece of legislation that would uh, clean up coal-fired power plants. Um, so this is, they uh, were, it became known as the four pollutants bill. So it was like CO2, mercury, SO2, NOx. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I ran the legislative side of that campaign to um, try to get that piece of legislation through. So uh, after that, you importantly went, I believe, to the Clean Air Task Force, where you've been for a, about the last 20 years. Is that right? Uh, it's uh, coming up on 24, actually. Um, wow. Uh, I have, uh, yeah, I have to do the math every once in a while to remind myself. Uh, but yeah, I, I started with CATF in, in 1999 and um, have been working on a variety of projects since then, mostly working on methane, though. Well, congratulations uh, on being at one employer for that long because it's uh, it's it's unusual. I also share that with you. I've been <laughs> on the faculty at Harvard for I think thirty, maybe it's thirty four years now, something like that. So um, it's not very common that, nowadays. <laughs> it's not. It's not common at all uh, in any sector of the economy. Um, so uh, let's now turn to where we are here in Dubai, to COP twenty eight. Um, in a moment, I really do want to turn to your work and more broadly what's happening at COP28 with regards to methane. That's the, what I'd really like to bore in on. But we, before we do that, I'd just like to ask you in general, is there is there anything overall that strikes you about COP28 as different from the previous COPs you've attended? Well, it, one thing that's never surprising is that they're all so wildly different. Um, mm-hmm. You know, every cop has its its quirks and nuances, and uh, this one is is massive. Um, yes, uh, I heard I heard the other day that they hit a hundred thousand people. Um, mm-hmm. It's just astounding to me to think that there's a hundred thousand people here for this thing. Um, yeah, it doesn't feel coming. that way at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's partly because we're in Dubai, where um, the city's not even blinking with a hundred thousand people coming into it. Um, other cops, uh, you know, when a cop's in, you know, Bonn, the entire city's taken over by, uh, the cop. The, the big thing I think for me and, and going a bit to what, you know, I work on is I'm just so amazed at how much attention and, um, action I've seen on, on methane mitigation. Uh, and that's, that's a huge change because I've been coming to cop for a long time and, and, We've never, ever seen anything like this. So so let's turn to that. Let's turn to methane. And I certainly agree. I've had the same reaction that just the difference between uh, COP27 last year in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt and this year at COP28 with regards to methane is like uh, night and day. It, it's really uh, quite remarkable. Now, I'm sure you're focusing on, on various uh, fronts. Um, and in fact, to me, the methane realm exemplifies uh, the fact that so much of the action increasingly over time in the COPs 
is outside of the negotiations, the UNFCCC negotiations themselves, and rather in the province of what the UNFCCC uh, calls civil society. And there's really quite a regime complex in the case of methane. So I, I want to start, though, with the UNFCCC, and then we can go on to all these different consortia that are engaged on uh, global methane emissions reduction. So let's start with the Paris Agreement and the NDCs. I'm not sure that everyone will know. Uh, tell us about the role of methane. I know it's 195 or so different nationally determined contributions, but does methane show up in those or not? It is starting to show up more and more. Um, one of the big pushes over the last um, year has been to get every country to uh, to put methane into their NDC. Um, mm -hmm. you, you would think that the NDCs would all have some formula that everyone follows, but they don't. Um, every mm -hmm. country approaches them in a slightly different way. Many times um, countries will lump all greenhouse gases together and, and create one target you know, for, for the total greenhouse gases. The, um, uh, but the push has been to get explicit mentions of methane in their NDCs. Um, and we've made a lot of progress in that space um, over the last year to get um, um, uh, a really high percentage of mm -hmm. members of the Global Methane Pledge um, with methane in their NDC. And the new push really is to um, go beyond that and to get uh, countries to set specific targets for methane in their NDCs. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. not as many um, countries that, ha that have those, but um, just recently China and the United States agreed to do that in their next round. And was that that agreement to do that in the next round was that part of the Sunnylands statement that came out, or is that something that actually took place here in Dubai? That came out of Sunnylands. It did. So you mentioned uh, the Global Methane Pledge. So let's start there. Start in the sense of now moving outside of the Paris Agreement itself. Although the Global Methane's Pledge is among governments, um, a lot of people. Uh, I find who are outside of this process and don't follow it closely, don't realize that the Global Methane Pledge is itself uh, outside of the UNFCCC and the Paris uh, Agreement. The Global Methane Pledge, I guess, was launched about 18 months ago by originally by the United States and uh, the European Commission, and then it was relaunched at the last year's COP, at least with photo opportunities. But it's it's taken some very significant steps forward here. Can you tell us about those? The pledge is 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 outside the UNFCCC process, um, and and by design it is mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. the UNFCCC process is for all its positives. It does have some faults in that it is extremely cumbersome. It is difficult to move things at at any speed through that process, and um, speed is what we need when it comes to methane. Methane is uh, the other day. Inger Anderson, the head of the United Nations Environment Program, described methane as our lifeboat, and we have to take it. It is it is the thing that we need to do the fastest in order to start to bend the curve on methane emissions, and so. Being outside of the UNFCCC process um, at least gives the opportunity for greater speed. 
there are problems that come with that, of course, but uh, it is it, there's definitely a reason for it being where it is. The, the agreement made really huge progress uh, at this COP. Um, you know, the big kind of headline stuff was that, that there was over $1 billion raised for new grant funding to support mitigation around the world. Um, we had, you know, um, some really exciting new members of the Global Methane Pledge, like Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan and Romania. Who are very, who are very significant emitters, at least, if not in total quantity, at least in terms of methane intensity, I believe. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, if you look around at all the news media of, um, you know, the satellite imagery of mm -hmm. large super emitter uh, and uh, events, you will yes. most likely find Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan in that mix of uh, super emitter um, news stories. So it's right. a really exciting thing to see both of them joining and, and joining eagerly. Um, I had the pleasure of being in, in the room with um, Ka both Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan. Uh, and you didn't get the impression that they were simply um, you know, waving a press release, you got the impression that they were really excited and eager to take this on. So I think that's really exciting. Um, I am anticipating some additional announcements after COP with both mm -hmm. of those countries that will um, uh, provide a lot more details about um, the pathway forward for um, working with working with them to, to implement projects. So that's really um, an exciting piece. Um, we've we saw the um, we saw several announcements of major pieces of legislation and regulation um, here at COP. The United States announced their final regulations for the oil and gas sector, which right. could achieve up to an eighty percent reduction from the regulated sources it will cover. We saw the Canadian government announce their draft regulations, which will get about a 75% reduction from the oil and gas sector. And right before COP, we had the European Union finalize its regulations for oil and gas. And um, that also included, for the first time ever, a methane import standard, which will apply to all gas that is bought and sold into the EU which is huge because the EU imports gas mm -hmm. from all over the world and is the largest purchaser of globally traded gas. So the potential for that import standard to reduce emissions is massive. Um, and we've calculated that out. We, we see if we could get every country that currently exports to the European Union, Union complying with the standard, we would get about a 30% reduction in total green uh, methane emissions from the oil and gas sector on a global basis. So it's, um, it's, it's pretty astounding to, to think about. And so that's, that's really exciting to me, but so that, that 30% uh, I should, I should pause. Number, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That 30% yeah. number uh, is familiar because of course the global methane pledge, which unlike what you were just laying out with meaningful, real binding policies is, is essentially voluntary. Um, the Global Methane Pledge, a 30% reduction by the year 2030, is an aggregate pledge. Individual countries are not saying that they're going to reduce by 30%. What's your reaction 
to that kind of structure for the Global Methane Pledge. I mean, I suppose that's why it's got such incredibly broad participation, what, 150 countries now or something. But is there a downside to that in your mind? No, I don't see a downside. I mean, I, I, okay. the reason that it's a collective goal is um, the only alternative would be to set a target for each and every country. Uh, you can't just say, we're going to get a 30% or a 40% or a 50% reduction in methane emissions because every country's methane inventory is different. You know, if you're New Zealand and all of your methane emissions comes from the agriculture sector, specifically cows and sheep, you have a very different profile of how emissions can be reduced versus if you are the United States who has a tremendous amount of oil and gas methane emissions. And that's because the economics, as well as the technology available, are very different for those two sectors. So the pledge was specifically designed with that in mind to allow for um, that flexibility within um, uh, the emission inventories so that countries wouldn't be you know, pushed away from um, joining and making progress if we mm -hmm. had just chosen a specific target and said every country has to meet this, um, I don't think we would have gotten very far. Um, even within the oil and gas sector, you know, what, mm -hmm. you know, one country can get versus another country is very different based on the kinds of infrastructure they might have in their, in their country. So that's very helpful. So, um, you know, as I mentioned a few uh, minutes ago that uh, something that really characterizes what's going on with methane at the COP is that there is highlighting this regime complex that there are so many different institutions that are engaged and we talked about one within the UNFCCC, the Paris Agreement and its NDCs. We've talked about one in some detail that's outside of that, but among governments, the Global Methane Pledge. I've got in front of me a list of five different, I don't know if some of them are venues, some of them are institutions, associations, and I'd love to get through all five if we can before we run out of time, because I think people will be very interested in this. Uh, and, if, and if on any of these that I'm going to go through, if you could give, give us at a minimum, a brief definition of, of what is it? Um, or if you can also offer and you're comfortable to offer an assessment of its relatively importance, effectiveness, or anything else, the role it plays. Uh, let's do that. How, is that okay with you? No, that sounds great. Okay, so, I'm, so we're going to start with the International Methane Emissions Observatory. That's a good place to start. Um, the IMEO is run, it sits within the United Nations Environment Program, and the whole purpose of the IMEO is to increase the clarity of emissions and our understanding of emissions data on a global basis. Um, mm -hmm. They are working with companies and countries and satellite providers to bring a tremendous amount of data forward to clarify, you know, kind of where we're at uh, with methane emissions and, um, and, and do that in a way that allows for countries to really um, understand you know, where everything sits in, in the order of methane. Um, it is primarily focused on the oil and gas sector, 
um, but mm-hmm. is going to be expanding to other sectors over time. It is going to publish um, a methane intensity index for the oil and gas sector sometime next year so that um, uh, countries that buy gas will be able to see how much um, methane is associated with the gas that I'm purchasing from country X or country Y. Um, And then is that going to be by country? If there are three different companies within that country, is it also by company or or no? It will start most likely by country, um, mm-hmm. but um, there's a, a, there's a real push to get to the company level and even better the basin level. So within mm-hmm. you know a country, yeah. you might have multiple basins of oil and gas in there, and the emissions associated with one basin can often be wildly different from the emissions associated with another basin. And so the goal is to get really to basins. So let me turn to uh, another institution. You, you've mentioned now uh, the ONG, the oil and gas sector. Um, there's the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, the OGCI. What's that? And again, if you could tell us what you think of it. So OGCI has been around for a while now, and um, they it they took on um, methane emissions as one of their key pieces within what they wanted to try to get their companies to tackle. Um, The OGCI targets are um, 0.2% methane leakage, um, which is kind of where people define the standard. Um, it's an ill-defined standard of what we all want, but that's kind of where we're at um, for upstream uh, oil and gas mm-hmm. methane emissions. Um, so that's pretty uh, a pretty good standard. They've got um, a lot of very large international oil and gas companies uh, as part of the mix, and then a few of the wealthier um, national oil companies in the mix. Um, and they, so they play a role in bringing industry along. Mm-hmm. in in this process which is you know which is a helpful thing right now there's also the climate and clean air coalition which i believe now has become the secretariat for the global methane pledge um tell us about that so i sit on the board of the climate and clean air coalition um catf was one of the founding members of the ccac mm-hmm. the ccac is made up of about 70 ish governments and 70-ish civil society groups from around the world. Mm -hmm. It's completely dedicated to reducing short-lived climate pollutants, which methane is a short-lived climate pollutant, Um, and and also focused on that nexus between um, clean air, public health, and those short-lived climate pollutants, which there's a lot of that. The CCAC, beyond um, playing the role of the Secretariat for the Global Methane Pledge, is also at the forefront of implementation of projects and support for um, policy development around the world. Uh, they, they bring in um, funding from a variety of sources, governments and philanthropy, and then they go back out to countries to provide technical support, policy support, so that we can get mm-hmm. methane mitigation projects moving um, or policies moving in in many places around the world. I see. Now, you know, al- already several times the oil and gas sector has come up 
in discussion. What you're certainly familiar with, but not all of our listeners may know that the oil and gas is, is certainly not the only sector for methane emissions. And in some parts of the world, it's not the most important or even an important sector. There's also, of course, coal bed methane, landfills, and, and also agriculture, in both livestock and rice paddy development, which in some parts of the world is exceptionally important. I've come across something called the Agriculture Innovation Mission for Climate or AIM for Climate. Um, have you come across them? Yeah, there's so there's a lot of efforts to to elevate the attention for agriculture methane um, in the early days of um, the methane fight. A lot of us chose to focus on oil and gas because of the plethora of technologies that exist. The fact that those technologies are fairly inexpensive to deploy. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. because there just wasn't a whole lot of us working on this stuff years ago, um, everybody mm -hmm. tended to focus on oil and gas that is changing a lot we there's a lot more attention going to the agriculture sector beyond um uh you know the the group you mentioned there's also the um there's a huge effort around um uh developing research and solutions for enteric um fermentation which is cows and uh, and so it's really exciting to see so much attention coming for agriculture. And for, mm -hmm. for a, a big reason is if you look past 2030, you know, when you we're all targeting 2030 is when we need to hit our 30 percent uh, reduction target um, mm -hmm. to keep 1.5 um, in reach. But after 2030, most of the methane emissions reductions are going to need to come from the agriculture sector. That's where the growth right. will be. That's where we will have made the least progress. And mm -hmm. because of the few, because of fewer solutions, um, because the costs are typically high and then it's just harder to deploy things. There really needs to be a lot of focus on, um, on developing more solutions and um, right. building out the science around uh, this. So that's really exciting to see um, yeah. as we, as we move. And those are some big things I think happen here at the COP is, is the unveiling of these, a lot more attention to this. So just uh, the day before yesterday, I, I engaged in a fascinating uh, chat or discussion with uh, a gentleman who is running efforts at the International Rice Research Institute uh, in the Philippines, focused on methane emissions reduction, looking both at changes in management practice, different kinds of cultivation, uh, and then treatment of stubble, and also at uh, plant breeding, which was, of course, the heart and soul of Erie, what they did for many years, bringing us the Green Revolution. So I think you're, you're absolutely right that that is going to be the future at a, at a cop i don't know if it'll be five or 20 years from now there that we're going to see a lot of attention to agriculture and and methane without a doubt now there are also finally there are also the uh bilateral initiatives and unilateral initiatives you mentioned some and then one that you mentioned early on is this sunny lands california china usa agreement um that's that has struck me as 
as very important. Um, it will obviously in a variety of ways that go beyond environment and climate change, but on climate change in particular, it struck me as very important. Do you feel that way or am I overstating its importance? No, I, I definitely feel that way. I think that, you know, what we saw um, for the last you know year and a half or so was that, um, or almost two years, is that China and the U.S. weren't talking on climate yeah. or anything else. And right. that is never a good thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. You know, when, when they're not talking, we're not making any progress. Um, I know that John Kerry's team put in a massive amount of work to, um, to develop the relationship again in a way that allows for the U.S. and China to to speak and a in and to to reach agreement and make progress. So I'm I'm really excited about that. Um, I mean, the friendship that Carrie and she, the um, uh, the lead negotiator for the Chinese, yeah. um, have ha, is is really paying dividends. Um, yes, and so I'm I'm really optimistic about that going forward. Um, it was it was a shame to to have that relationship broken down for so long, but I'm really optimistic by the um, the progress that's been made at Sunnylands and and then continued here at COP as well. Well, that's very encouraging to hear. Um, I'll I'll tell you very often when we talk about climate change, whether I'm talking with researchers, government people, or activists, um, there's there's a note of pessimism that inevitably comes up, and so this has been actually quite an uplifting conversation, at least for me, and and I hope for our listeners. So we're going to end with that. Um, thank you very much, Jonathan, for taking time to join me today. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you. No, my pleasure, Rob. It's um, it's great to have you guys working on this stuff and uh, looking forward to continuing to collaborate. Absolutely. So our guest today has been Jonathan Banks, the Global Director of the Methane Pollution Prevention Program at the Clean Air Task Force. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.